I guess some of the essence of relationships. Hmm, interesting. Maybe I'll I should them. revisit this musical. I don't know why I remember it just like being so stressful. This feels well, I mean, stressful. So I mean, they <laughs> have to. They have to find a bunch of stuff. Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to, and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Sarah Wentz at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sassan Nagash um, from San Diego State University. Today, Sassan will bring us a conversation about what reality TV dating shows remind us about being ready to date. Ready. Ooh, I'm very interested in what that ready means. Then we're going to jump to our academic deep dive segment and discuss a new academic article, Associations Between Vocal Arousal and dyadic coping during couple interactions after a stress induction. So I assume this is like a lab type study? It is. Very cool. Uh, we haven't had one of those in a while, so that'll be really cool to dive into <laughs> in the academic deep dive, get it? And then in good or bad advice, we will talk about some advice from Stephen Sondheim. Bring a little Broadway to the scene. Um, so that'll be very interesting and intriguing. I'm trying hard uh, not to sing the lyrics when I do it. No one wants to hear that, am I right? So as always, if you have any advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast.gmail.com or tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us, all at attachedpodcast, or go straight to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. As always, for bonus content and to support this wee little podcast of ours, please go to our Patreon page and consider becoming a patron. That uh, website is patreon.com slash attached. Also, as always, wherever you listen to our podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Well, we have a really great episode. I'm super excited about all of the um, content we're going to dig into. But before we get to all of that, I'm so curious. How are you guys doing? What's up? What's new in your world? Happy spring. Woods, what's going on? Well, spring brings softball season. Technically, fall also brings softball season, <laughs> oh. which is, yeah. <laughs> so long. I don't know if that's it's an perennial. age thing or if that's just now how we do this. We just do all sports all seasons. Um, it's been an interesting test of my... Um, I can't wait to see what adjective this is. <laughs> I'm not really sure how to describe it. Uh, my capacity as a parent to... Um, uh, be emotionally well, supportive from the sideline while also not getting so emotionally involved uh, <laughs> that I'm um, causing problems. Oh, um, yeah, it's yeah. the capacity to find balance. I, I, yeah, yeah, it's one of those things that I think I thought that <laughs> parents that got very, very into watching their kids play sports, they were suffering from some sort of deficit of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not a judgmental person too much by nature. Um, this has challenged me, but I'm not judging the player so much as my child has jumped up an age group. Okay. And I would say um, collectively they've jumped back a skill level. And I don't know if you all have watched mm. the movie, The Little Giants. It was came mm. out in the nineties. It was about like a ragtag crew of uh -huh. kids who really are not cut out to play football, but really want to. And they're like coached to be able to like play together. It's what it's like watching my child team where some of the other children uh, appear to be ready for professional athletics mm. and really our team is pretending to swim to first base. <laughs> they are um, supposed to be getting ready to bat and like calling out to their teammates like, wow, look at the moon. I mean, it is like extremely oh challenging God. to be like, wow, look at you guys. You're working really hard. And the teams they've come up against so far are stealing home, right? That's like all the runs are being made. They don't even have to even work that hard. They're ah. stealing home over and over. So anyways, it's been an interesting few months for me. Uh, we're about halfway through the season, maybe a little bit further than that. I and understand. Yeah, it's a lot. Are you shouting things like pay attention? 
So the head coach was away this past weekend and I was told that I would help substitute like step in, but several Uh of the dads sort of swarmed the field knowing that would be the case. And, um, so I felt like, okay, well maybe the sidelines just for me today, which is fine, but nobody was paying attention to the swarm of children in the outfield. So I tried yelling like softball ready because that's what they're supposed to be cute. Several of these girls slowly looked to the side, looked at me like, who the hell are you? And then just went back to doing, just idling, just doing nothing. (laughs) You have a bunch of uh, David Roses in your outfield. Oh, that would be fun. (laughs) These children are delightful. They're so sweet. They all have, um, it's like a mix of personality, you know, like girls at nine and 10, like, oh my God, so fun. And um, so, no, I'm not yelling much of anything anymore. I tried that a few times and... It sounds like you're trying to bring some structure, though, and you're trying to keep them safe. Because in softball, you have to be mindful of things that are, like, that's how they presented it to my son's team. Is like, this is a safety concern when you're sitting there picking grass instead of looking at the ball that's coming your way. Right. That is... Well, it felt like we evolved past that. Like, they're a little old. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They're just not quite in it. You know, they're like, they're just, it's a lot of people shouting, like, the ball's coming towards you. And then watching it fly past a child and yelling like it's you i mean it's fine it's just it's fine (laughs) it's a mixed skill level that's oh no i feel you on that i get like it's in a different age when dre was doing it at four i was like why are we choosing to spend two days a week doing this if he's just gonna sit and pick grass like we don't have to right like this is not a thing for him in his life that's gonna ultimately make or break him like let's just how enriching is this yeah like if he's not focused and enjoying it. What are we doing here? <laughs> like, I, sure. um, yeah. But it was definitely entertaining. Like there were stories to yeah. be told at dinner, like, hey, how was that oh, grass yeah. picking? And you know, did right. you notice the team so around you? <laughs> was the team around you? <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Sesson, what's going on in your world? So um, I have been experiencing what I have described um, as uh, travel planning anxiety. I don't know oh. if there's an actual like syndrome for this, but I think like it's really um, been interesting. We've been planning a trip to Europe for years and every year something or another, of course, has come and got in the way of that. This year I said, I am going by myself if no one is, you know, going to come with me. It was one of those like, you can tell I'm not messing around anymore. I'm going to go to Europe. But I have put really no effort into planning it. Every time I do, I get so anxious about it that I just walk away from my computer. And I'm starting to realize that it's an actual pattern that I'm doing, right? Before it was just like, I was making excuses for why I wasn't able to sit and just plan some aspect of it out. And now I'm like, I'm actively avoiding it. And at the same time, trying to be excited about the trip and knowing like I'm going on this trip I really want it so I don't know what to make of that like I usually am very disciplined when I want something I'll usually make myself you know get involved and put the work and time in but I'm curious <laughs> what do you all think is my problem because like, I'm really actively avoiding this planning and I don't know if I've just put too much weight into wanting this trip that I now like don't mm. want to plan anything that might not live up to what in my mind I really want. I think there's part of that for sure because I'm like, there's so many options. I just finally narrowed down the three countries and now I'm like, what do I do with that? I don't know. countries, yeah. I think definitely, uh, I don't know what your problem is, but (laughs) I would say, uh, Sarah probably is better at that game. Um, (laughs) There's a reason why I quit therapy. Um, But one of the things that helped me was think of it maybe more as like a tasting tour, like mm-hmm. not as in food, but like there's literally no way I can see everything, but like see one or two things. But then also remember like part of being for me going on like a vacation is also to relax. So working in a day, like we would only do excursions or, you know, go see a place or do something every other day. So one day we would just hang out at the house or wherever we're renting and go. Maybe what we do that day is go walk around and find a grocery store and go like, look at there, like, you know, just really chill and like 
hang out. And then the next day we plan a traveling tour or, you know, something that takes us in a car or something like that. So that really helped me because it was just like, okay, we're going to do a very small handful of things that are available, but also we're just going to enjoy the Europe, right? Because they're more chill than we are over here in yeah. the States. Yeah. Um, so that helped me a lot, like lower my expectations that like, there's literally no way I can see everything and like literally no way I can even see like a 10th of the stuff that's there. So just pick one or two. Mm. Oh, your face suggests that that is not something that maps on for you at all. (laughs) I'm anxious just about hearing your story because it's like, in her head, it's what do you mean? I can't see everything. Yeah, right. That's what, her what do you mean? I me. take a day off for my vacation. That's the part that I'm like regularly self-regulating about right yeah, now. Yeah, you hang out on the porch, eat some about. lovely cheese and wine. You uh, and watch so that would be my plan for half an hour of the day, and then I'd be like, okay, what are we oh. doing? Next? Like, I'm not someone. I don't want to go on that vacation with you. No, you don't, because I really am like, my thing is YOLO. Like, Why? I don't know that I'll ever be back there again. And I want to crush it. I want to capture it all. Right. And I'm not saying like every second of the day has to be planned, Mm -hmm. but it has to be a really fairly. But if you're tired, are you going to enjoy it? I won't be tired. I love traveling. Okay. I really enjoy. I love the eating. Will your family be tired? I don't know, maybe, but they can hang back. I'm <laughs> they can hang back. <laughs> I have been very clear that I've waited for a really long time. So when I'm there, I'm going to sure. really capitalize on the experience. Sure. I just don't know that I ever want to go back to the same country more than once. I have this idea of traveling the world. So, you know, Spain, I just need to check it off the list and make sure, sure I, as much as I can, knowing that I'm not going to see everything, but that's where I'm like, no, I mean, yeah. This maps on certainly to your personality. Yeah, exactly. Very consistent. Trailblazer. You're a trailblazer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You were the first one to have ever gone to Spain. <laughs> Colonize the back sounds like, oh, no. <laughs> It sounds like you're just needing some structure and some yeah. safety. And I'm busy doing that for a softball team. Someone <laughs> wise just told me recently. So I could probably help you with this. Too, it feels like. <laughs> Hundred percent. Yeah, you just need a little bit of structure. I do. That's why I was like, "Who's been? Tell me what your experience was. Is it worth? Like, I don't want to take a chance on any day of my trip. So you both will be hearing from me, given how you recently have traveled to Europe and hundred <laughs> percent had experiences. So I'll be in touch. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, well, I can't wait to hear how this uh, trip goes next season. Um. So an interesting thing has been happening here at this UT campus. I have been, and maybe it's a spring phenomenon. I'm not really sure, but I walk along and I see a discarded pair of boxer briefs of very like colors. It has happened to me on four different occasions in the past two months. I'm not sure what, I assume they're students. I'm not sure what is happening uh, uh, on campus when I'm not on it. Uh, but I have seen blue ones. I have seen red ones. I'm not uh, sure what's happening. It is wild. And also who's not picking them up? I mean, I guess I'm not picking them up. <laughs> so that explains that. <laughs> so you're contributing to the problem. I'm contributing no. to the problem. Now we know. But like, can you imagine like walking through wherever you are and just, and that's the only pair of clothing that's discarded. It's not like someone, their gym bag got dumped out. It's just a pair of clothing. And it's their boxer briefs. I have two questions Uh because my investigator act goes on. Sure. Two questions. Are they male? Right. Okay. And are they the same brand? Oh, you know what? I didn't pay that much attention. I am so sorry. That could tell you if they're planted or not. Uh Uh-huh. Right? Well, one of them was like in a bush and like you could tell it like uh, had been there a while because like the rain had like made it go into, you know, it like molded to the bush. I just don't know what these gentlemen are doing with mm. their underwear just discarded. They're probably in the bush waiting for somebody to help them. And you're just like, well, that's weird. And you just <laughs> keep walking. Nobody's taking the sign. Oh, no one's helping them. <laughs> yeah. Lots of questions. What was your second question? Do I know the brand? Well, the brand is the first question and then the location of it. Are they within the same area? Like, No, one was like 
over at the gym, which is on one side of the campus, and the other one was in my parking lot, which is the other side of campus. Like, and do you have a map also, with pins mm, where you to. have located? <laughs> there is a pad. I put it up in my office, and then when the dean comes by, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, you have it with these pins? <laughs> what are? Why do you have?" And then I'll explain. I've been tracking underwear of students, and then I'd get in trouble. Tenure. <laughs> Hashtag immediate tenure. <laughs> you so solved the case of the briefs. Yes. <laughs> the briefs on campus. Oh, my word. It's been very silly. I'm going to look to my side and be like, there's another pair. What is happening? Spring fever, I guess. I'm not really sure. Spring fever. <laughs> First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and families, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Sesson, what you got for us? Can't wait. Yeah, so um, admittingly, I've been binge watching some reality um, dating shows. Love is Blind 4 came out recently and Netflix Netflix and I definitely got back onto that um and after many years of like avoiding it I decided to watch a season of um Married at First Sight that's I think the name of the show and um that's the one where people literally walk down the aisle and meet the person that they're going to marry right there and then and then stay married for a couple months and decide, you know, contractually, yeah, yeah, it, to see if they actually want to stay together. And at the end of that two months, they have like a decision day where they decide to stay together or annul, I guess, their marriage. So I've only sure. seen one of like what I think are like twelve or thirteen seasons. Um, I know it had it's had many seasons and been on for many years, but I. Couldn't find anything one night, and I was like, I'll start watching this. And, of course, all it takes is one or two episodes, and you've got me hooked. hooked. Hook, line, and sinker. Um, so in watching both of these pretty much around the same time, of course, my brain always starts to look for patterns. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just notice, I'm reminded of just how much people lack self-awareness um, when they're pursuing serious relationships I'm not talking about casual dating but like people who are you know attempting to find real deep connections and pursue serious long-term relationships marriages so forth um and you know what I notice not just on these shows but I also see it right in couples in real life um is that people often when they're having from relationship to relationship like difficulties finding stability and like a good fit they often look to the external world to make sense of why that is or to sort of on some level like put the accountability onto some context or the other person or whatever it might be and I'm just not convinced that people are doing the work that's necessary on themselves to really be in a healthy stable relationship and find a really fitting partner um these shows really sort of just really highlight that for me quite a bit and i don't know it leaves me feeling pretty sad for people because i think there's so much pain and suffering that can happen within relationships um when people are really not in a place where they are doing the work to grow personally um to really understand their own histories and their own sort of mental and emotional wellness and um there's just a lot that they experience and then also that transpires in the relationship as a result so and people do this going from one relationship to the other without taking that pause to really like again do the work heal mm -hmm. process um and i'm just thinking like it happens so commonly in our culture that to me it speaks to a larger societal systemic issue that we have around how we are really educating people to understand what it takes to be in a healthy relationship and what it should look like when a relationship no longer is serving them well. 
it's a big conversation. I guess what I'm not right. bringing up is not something that could be, you know, solved for, of course, at all in any easy way, but like even discussed in an easy way. But I, it just reminded me like watching these couples who are like really seeking like long term commitments, who are just not doing the work on themselves to like get there. It's like constantly like looking to the other person to like change and fix themselves and do these things that they think are going to solve for some of the pretty significant issues in their relationship. So yeah, it just brought up some questions for me, you know, around um, whether or not to that people will go into a relationship for the sake of trying to better themselves, right? Like if I find someone who I think has all the qualities that I don't have or um, has the qualities that are going to enhance my qualities, whatever, that that's going to be enough rather than to really take that time to do that work um, for themselves. And then also with the partner, of course, it's not just that we grow in our better versions of ourselves, you know, on our own, like relationships can bring that out. But how much mm-hmm. of that are we really, you know, um, trying to seek out in the relationship as opposed to trying to find that balance? Um, and then also why people stay in relationships with individuals who don't acknowledge on their side that there are things that they need to do to grow as well. Like there are just a lot of dynamics that I've been observing in these shows that just make me go, oh my gosh, we have so much to do. (laughs) People need so much support in how to like really do this relationship thing better. Like it is so fundamental to who we are and our whole life trajectories Mm -hmm. and the children that we have and our life satisfaction. And it's just, we're not figuring out how to really intentionally go into relationships in better spaces, in better ways. Yeah. And I think what you just said is probably one of the crooks of it. I think that there are many answers to it, but the fact that you said it's so fundamental to us, I think a lot of people uh, enter in relationships or have the belief that this should come naturally, right? Because it is so fundamental. So many people have relationships and throughout time, Really, right. These romantic relationships in particular. And also we're taught in pop culture, right, that, you know, these kind of things should come naturally and being in relationships should be easy and natural. And um, you shouldn't have to put work into figuring out how to communicate effectively. And these are skills um, that we're just kind of born with. Um but obviously that's not the case. So I do wonder if that is one of the big corners of kind of the concern that you're bringing up is this belief that, you know, if I don't do it naturally, then there's something internally flawed with me and not necessarily um, uh, something I can work on maybe. Yeah. So I wondered um, uh, because your expertise like you know what it means to put the work in to be able to sort of focus on yourself and become more self-aware so I'm wondering if you were describing that process of doing work on yourself in like uh to other people who are interested who maybe aren't you know therapist background etc how would you describe what that includes Mm. yeah that's a really fair question um I think one of the things um that I think sometimes people have to do is really pause to recognize like what are the areas that I continue to sort of run up against that people are giving me like feedback about or you know areas where I see relationally like there's something here right there's some tension here there's some and really try to see like and this is not to assume that because you try to do the self-work that it comes easy right there's a lot of things that we try to reflect on sometimes that aren't easy for us because there's trauma there. There's, you know, the fact that we need sometimes the other person from our past or even our present to help give us some feedback to help us do the process. But I do think like taking the time one to take accountability for like, there is a way that we show up in relationships that has to do with what we are doing and how we are reacting and not just the other person. Mm-hmm. Um, just always having a level of accountability in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I always say with like to my partner and to my couples, like this might seem like a very, very clear you're to blame. I'm not kind of situation, but there is almost always two people to sort of mm-hmm. take accountability in any kind of conflict that arises. Right. Like, and accountability doesn't mean blame you're wrong. I'm right. Kind of thing. It just means recognizing 
what you can do, what your part is in contributing to a dynamic that needs mm-hmm. to be worked on. And so part of like accountability seems to sometimes really be missing when I'm watching people um, in mm-hmm. relationships. So knowing how to take accountability, right? What that looks like. And then deciding where do you go to do the work? Some people turn to spirituality, right? Some people will turn to therapy. Some people will turn to leaning into other relationships and trying to get honest feedback about like, okay, how do you feel like I show up in our relationship? Are there things you wish that I would try to be more acknowledging of or, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, And of course, there's other resources out there. There's self-help material right there's Mm -hmm. doing that work internally and doing meditation or whatever it might be there's different mechanisms available to us for doing the work on ourselves and self-reflecting and processing and all of that but I do think being intentional in that effort it's not just oh I need to think about what I'm doing like what does that actually look like like Mm -hmm. what does it mean and to be consistent in that effort because we're constantly growing and exposing ourselves to things in our world and our worldviews are always shifting and evolving. So like not just taking Mm -hmm. a moment in time to do the work, but constantly recognizing that part of existing is part of like taking time and effort to really turn inward. And I don't, you know, think doing it all the time is also necessarily helpful. There are people Mm -hmm. who seek way too much insight and get totally debilitated by that and don't connect Mm -hmm. emotionally to themselves Mm -hmm. as a result. So there has to be ability to really look inwards and not always look for someone else or something else to explain Mm -hmm. your feelings or your unhappiness or whatever tensions you might Mm -hmm. be having. So I know that was sort of a long-winded statement. No, I think it's really helpful because I think I understand and totally agree with what you're saying. And also, um, if I'm not hearing what you're saying uh, with a real understanding of what does that look like, if I'm somebody that's maybe not doing that and sort of making sort of repeated similar sort of um, mistakes or patterns or ways of engaging in relationships across relationships, uh, I might therefore not know what that means when you're saying do the work in and out of relationships. And so I think it's really helpful that you're sort of spelling out not only why that's so important, but what that can look like. I think that's really valuable. Yeah. And I think maybe one of the things that's preventing people is sometimes that work is really painful and it hurts a lot and it's really hard to do. Like looking at uh, and some people might label it like this and I wouldn't, but some people may, and w- which makes it probably even more painful is thinking of it as like, oh, failures in this and failures in that can sometimes be really hard to look at and sit with. Um, and I-, I think if that's something that is kind of speaking true to you, it's hard to kind of reflect on these things. I think that's particularly when having a third party like a therapist might be really helpful to bring in to help you process that or bring it with your partner and your couple to help you go through these steps in a way that you're not deep diving into pain and like welling in there and getting lost in the pain of that too because you need to be able to come out the other side of it right Um, so just be mindful if you're having a hard time trouble doing that it's too hard then find someone that can help you navigate through that. Exactly. Find a trusted person. It doesn't have to be a therapist if that's not your jam, but it's like someone who cares about you enough to have some difficult dialogue, uncomfortable dialogue maybe, or your partner who's, you know, finding a partner who's always willing to help you talk through some of the internal stuff that you might be experiencing and vice versa. I think any healthy relationship requires both partners be able to say vulnerably, I'm struggling in this way sometimes, and I want to talk through that with you, right? And if you can't do that, that's really tough. But you don't want to isolate yourself in that way when you're trying to work on your growth and trying to like pull yourself out of any connection to people in that effort to not want to burden them with it or feel crazy for acknowledging what you're feeling. Like you have to, on some level, stay connected to people when you're doing that self-work. And it just could look differently for different people. So I think sometimes we're talking about it like it's work and it's hard and it can be painful. And other times, I mean, a lot of times I think it can also be a relief. Mm -hmm. It's an investment in yourself and the people you care about. It's a measure of commitment and devotion and loyalty. And um, I think it can be scary uh, what you're describing, but also it can be an enormous relief of like, 
I can sort of understand more about um, what I need in a relationship or how I affect people around me and why also that's really important and why I matter and people can validate that for me. So I think sometimes we talk about the work we put into relationships in a way that people hear like, I mean, who wants it? No one's like, oh, I'm going to work harder, just like apply more and more of the same solution, like over and over. Right. Yeah. But really, if you really can sort of pause, like you're saying, slow down and self-reflect and consider where to shift gears. Sometimes it's effort, but it's actually easier in the long run. It's yeah. less painful. It's not hitting your head against the same wall over and over. It's finding doors instead, which I think can be quite lovely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. I love doors. In this episode's Academic Deep Dive, we're talking about new research that explores how couples cope with stress in a new article titled Associations Between Vocal Arousal and Dyadic Coping During Couple Interactions After Stress Induction by Dr. Lisanne Bulling at the University of Zurich and her colleagues, recently published in the International Journal of Applied Positive Psychology. This research explores how partners talk about recent stressful experiences with each other and how they cope with this stress together, a process that's called dyadic coping. So dyadic two, coping, coping with the stress. Although we know how stress in our lives can spill over to affect partners and contribute to feeling less satisfied with our relationship, dyadic coping can mitigate some of these stress effects. But what matters is how a stressed person communicates about their stress, how their partner responds to the stress communication by providing support, and how the support they provide may help the person who experienced the initial stress. So a cycle. Beautiful. But we haven't understood this process very well until now, ladies and gentlemen. The research we're discussing in today's Academic Deep Dive explores each step in this dyadic coping process, starting with how do people communicate about their stress in a way their partners can understand, as well as how listening partners empathize and provide the support that is so key for couples' well-being. Sarah, I'm all ears, not at all feeling stressed, which is very rare for me, so that's good. So I'm in this state of being able to listen. Can you please tell us about this super cool new research study? Yeah, I think what's important to sort of cover first before talking about the experiment that they did in this project is that they're focused on communication and communicating about stress, but communication happens in lots of different ways, right? So we have verbal communication where we might feel stressed or have like be stressed at work. And then we come home and we describe what happened at work. We describe the event. We talk about how we feel, but it's also very nonverbal. And so if I'm nervous, you can probably read that off my body language. If I'm really excited, you can read my gestures, my facial expressions. And then there's a third kind of communication called paraverbal communication, which is changes in tone of voice. And so just like you just described, Patricia, it's really important to think about all the different ways in which we communicate, not just with our partners, this is true across people we communicate with, because unambiguous communication of stress is really how other people accurately understand and then are able to respond to why I'm stressed and the fact that I'm stressed in a way that really meets my needs, right? Mm -hmm. So thinking about, are they listening to me? Are they showing that they're being really attentive and tuning in and uh, providing understanding and encouragement? Uh, They first have to understand that I was stressed in the first place. And that paraverbal communication contains a lot of information about our emotions that we're experiencing. So that um, what these authors are really focused on is the voices, what they refer to as the fundamental frequency. So this is the rate of vocal cord vibration or what we hear as voice pitch. So people wow. can infer a speaker's emotions from their voice with pretty high accuracy. So more so than if, um, right, in studies where we measure like heart rate, if you're really stressed and your heart rate goes up, I can't tell that your heart rate is up. I'm busy maybe looking at your facial expressions and your body language, but I don't know that your heart rate went up. Right. But in just regular day-to-day uh, interactions, when you hear a person's vocal pitch go up, you can pretty accurately infer that their um, 
highly aroused, that they're experiencing some intense emotion. And that's true for positive or negative emotions. But um, that voice pitch is something we don't research very often. The other piece that they're really interested in is this idea of emotional resonance. So in couples, another way to understand the emotions that a partner is experiencing is by feeling a similar level of emotional arousal. So feeling what our partner feels, which is a little bit more automatic, it's different than that cognitive piece of understanding what my partner feels. So it's that empathic resonance of stress. And they're looking at both. So they did that through, a, yes, you're right, a lab study, an experiment where they brought in 198 mixed gender couples wow. who were together at least a year, uh, between 20 to 45 uh, years old. And what they did was they first left them alone in the lab for eight minutes while they video recorded them in the um, uh, natural interaction, just how they would typically talk. There's no guidance here. And then either the male partner or the female partner or both underwent a stress induction task. So in this lab, they used a pretty standardized uh, way to super stress out your research participants. They put them through like a mock job interview, a mental arithmetic test. Like there's like a pretty standardized way they do that. But whether it was one partner or both, they weren't there while their partner was being stressed. They were in the waiting room or they were in another room themselves being mock job interviewed. Uh, And then they were returned to the waiting room together and recorded for another eight minutes so that they could observe how they coped with that stress and responded to each other. Um, And so what they found was that when women were stressed, when they went through the stress experience, but not their male partners, um, men's voice pitch was also observed to change. And that was significantly linked with the support they provided their partner, which in turn was associated with how satisfied the women felt Mm -hmm. with their partner's efforts to cope. Um, Whereas when men were stressed, but their female partners weren't, men's voice pitch was linked to women's supports that they provided their male partners. So women's uh, coping behavior, their supportive behavior was tied to the changes that they could hear in their uh, male partner's voices and men were, that was linked to how satisfied they were with the support they got. When they were both stressed and then reunited, women's own voice changes was linked to providing their partner with support. And that was associated with men being satisfied and less so in the other direction. So women resonated with their partner when they were both stressed and men really appreciated that support. So, um, whereas, um, women cued into changes in their male partner's voice, that vocal stress to understand, and then really sort of maybe also attuned to their own stress experiences. They were doing that pair of verbal communicate. They could hear those changes. They could also resonate, but men felt were more likely to feel what their partner felt. And then they felt stressed themselves. And that was more likely to move them to support only if they themselves didn't come into that situation also stressed. So it could be that men are more sort of expressing that stress more explicitly. Like maybe their voice change is just sort of more obvious or women are maybe overall sort of better attuned to that paraverbal stress communication. But either way, whatever's cueing somebody in to support their partner when they're picking up on the stress, that is um, related to whether or not their partner is satisfied. Like, are you picking up on the fact that I'm upset, right? So there are some um, limitations of this project. I mean, the data are a little bit old, which is okay. That happens too. It's a pretty complicated Mm. project. Um, They also were measuring cortisol as um, something that they didn't report on here. Um, So they had some really pretty intense um, ways in which they excluded possible participants. But in general, I think it's a really interesting um, project that really points to how dyadic coping, the ways in which we support our partners is really powerful, but it's also very nuanced. Yeah, it's very, I mean, this is at the level of they, they took audio recordings and um, removed any background noise, removed laughter, and like coded frequency changes for each person and then looked at how they were linked. This is pretty nuanced stuff. We're not intentionally very often going in saying, I'm going to really convey not just with the words I say, but with all part of me that I'm cued into my partner, but we can do that, right? Therapists trained to do that. Couples can also work on that too. We can communicate. We've heard our partners are stressed explicitly with our words, but we can also shift how we speak to convey, like we get it. This is hard 
And then I'm going to tune into you and I'm going to ask questions and I'm going to offer encouragement and I'm going to show that I care about you, but I'm going to do that with my whole self. And when that is happening, of course, you're going to be more satisfied with that kind of support from your partner because they are showing you that they care hundred percent. So I just thought it was a really interesting experiment that was really very down to the nitty gritty processes of how we communicate, which is really cool. Yeah. Do you see this type of work being transferred to a therapist's office? I'm just curious how you might see that. So I do think um, teaching couples how to attune to each other is a huge part of couples therapy. Um, and that is sometimes at these very basic levels of what are you experiencing emotion-wise and how can we help you tune into your own emotional experiences and also how that shows up, like how you're conveying you're stressed and then also breaking down how your partner reads that stress off you and then how they respond. I mean, that is sort of the essence of couples therapy in a lot of different ways that couples therapy is done that attuning process and really genuinely slowing couples down to help them understand when you are stressed, it's all over your face. It just immediately is coming off the surface of you that floods your partner. And then when you feel like they're having to back up and pull out of those conversations, that's because they're overwhelmed. They don't know what to do with all of that. Did you know that you were that stressed and that that's how that was showing up for you? Because we can shift both, right? We can shift how you can vet, you're sharing that you're stressed so that your partner really understands it. But also then we can work on how they show up and support you in a way that fits what you're really needing in those moments. And that's not the same for everybody. So a hundred percent, I think this is probably in the experimental level, what couple therapists have been working on for a while, but it's also showing that it really does matter, which, um, Mm-hmm. Uh, I think is a really helpful addition to our research uh, yes. on what matters for couples. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of sometimes when we are reacting without understanding of where our reaction is coming from yeah. and mm-hmm. how it gives the opportunity to provide some words to that. Like it helps explain that a little bit. You know, when we, like you described, pull back when our partner is perhaps not even saying anything yet, but like something about the way the inflection in their voice, whatever's coming up, it is, you know, triggering our own fight or flight response, right? It could could be true. And when we, our partner notices that it could be feel really hurtful, right? Like I'm trying to express something you're pulling back or the opposite even, right? Like you're getting reactive. And I think to help people understand, sometimes we react to just the way the other person is present to us. Like it comes, like you said, down to some of these really nuanced sort of ways of showing up that we don't always know how to pinpoint as human beings. Like why did I just react to something without yeah. even having any information? Any information. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like um, I didn't like it. I didn't like, I don't it. like and, it. And you hear partners saying like, I didn't even say that. Why would you be upset? Or why did mm. you pull back? Like it gives some context to that. And on the other side, it gives the person who is having that physical reaction, right? Where their body and their voice is conveying information, the opportunity to recognize how they too can do work to regulate some of that so that their partner has the opportunity to show up in a more right. supportive way or tune better. And yeah. So it's good for both partners, I think, to really understand how to lean into some of those nonverbal right. cues that are or, critical. Exactly. And to talk about that, like, let's say you are having this reaction and you know, you definitely what you're saying could help work with self-regulation, but also you could talk about that. Like I'm having a huge reaction right now. Um, I'm not really sure why. Um, Give me a second or something along those lines. So your partner doesn't immediately, you know, withdraw like you guys were saying. Um, But yeah, there's so many different ways that you can handle it once you know that this is going on, right? And this research is helping us really see how this fits into the system with couples. Yeah. I think about couples too, where the person is really good with their words and Mm -hmm. uses like the approach of, I'm fine. I haven't said this or that, right? Like in a way to suggest like, I am a great communicator. It's you who's not. And really, you know, speak 
someone like myself who can really articulate myself in moments <laughs> of stress, but the inflection in my voice can really vary. Right. And if I have a partner who really picks up on that, which I do, I can get really frustrated when I'm like, but I'm not saying that. But he's right. like, but you're I showing I never it. said this yeah. was a problem. I never said right. this, right? Or I'm being very calm in the way I'm approaching you about this. But there's all this inconsistent right. messaging and all the other ways I'm showing yeah. up. And they're reacting to that other stuff. But I privilege right. my verbal Terrible. communication, right? And I think we all do. If I didn't say it, then you shouldn't be reacting in a certain way. But there's other ways clearly that we're communicating that <laughs> we're not always, you know, good at managing. Yeah. Very cool. Woohoo! Boo! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from our parents, family, and friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows, reality shows for one, of course. And we read endless advice spewed at us on social media, blogs, numerous top 10 lists, and all sorts. But believe it or not, a lot of it just isn't actually good for our relationships. Some of it is, some of it's not. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. Sometimes it's in the middle. If you have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all at Attached Podcast. Or just go straight to the source, attachedpodcast.com. So today we are going to do a deep dive into uh, Stephen Sondheim. He is a famous lyricist and a Broadway show writer. I don't think that's what they call him. Anyway, he uh, passed away recently, not that recently, um, but also one of his most famous musicals, Into the Woods, has a revival currently on Broadway. In, uh, Into the Woods, if you're not familiar, go check it out. It's a movie now. Um but it's about bringing together all of these storybook characters. They all go into the woods, uh, learn something about themselves, and then they come out different, of course. Uh, that's a really simple way of saying it. So we're going to go through a couple of different quotes through Into the Woods. Like I said, I'm going to not sing any of them, um, but well worth um, a listen. Ladies, have you guys ever seen Into the Woods? I have not. Parts of it. Yeah. Okay. I gave up like halfway through a few times. I don't know. I'm sorry. I was hoping <laughs> okay. you would ask. No, it's okay. It is one of my favorites for sure. Um, the original starred Bernadette Peters, the oh, one yes, and only. I yes, I um, know. You don't know. You're... No, I do. Yeah. I mean, she's incredible. Okay. And I do know her version of those songs. Okay. But I think I was far too young the first time I tried to watch a recording of that mm. Broadway show um, at a friend's home where they were obsessed with Broadway. And I was like, this is oh my gosh. not for kids. Your and friends not for me. were me in high school. Um, that's <laughs> when I first saw this version of Into the Woods as well was in high school. Anyway, alas, we digress. Okay. So first is, I gosh, I believe this is the baker's wife. I should definitely have double checked this, but here we go. First quote, um, people make mistakes holding to their own thinking they're alone what do we think good or bad advice assuming it means it means that once yeah. you've made a mistake you think you're the only person that could have made a mistake so then you keep to yourself yeah and also people make mistakes when they think they have to be by themselves holding to their own I seeing that they're I alone see. and then they're making these mistakes uh, not yeah. reaching out to partners or not reaching out to people yeah 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 and asking for help yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i think this is 100% true um i am very this is a classic area of growth for me <laughs> personally <laughs> you could be an expert in relationships and still be like no no it's fine i've got this totally solo like i'll just keep working very very hard at this thing all by myself um so i do think this is something that people are um if that's the interpretation goodness yes people do that all the time kids and adults like this is i was thinking adults first but kids do this too yeah it's a good one Sesson. what are you thinking can we read the quote again i want to 
People make mistakes holding to their own, thinking they're alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. I definitely feel like um, there's some of us who are really hard on ourselves about mm. anything, everything, um, and somehow feel like we should just naturally know how to engage everything in our lives, right? And do it well and do it beautifully and do it, you know, without um, giving ourselves a lot of grace when we make mistakes and not always seeing it as an opportunity, right? To learn and to bring in other people. Um, Yeah, and I think about particularly those folks who really don't feel like they have a support system in their lives or a person they could really trust to be vulnerable enough to say I erred or I felt like in this moment I didn't live up to something um yeah yeah I'm sorry Sasa I didn't mean to interrupt you I was gonna agree that I actually think clinically I see this more than I think we have great science to sort of support this but I even see it amongst a lot of people who do have solid support systems like when you ask about it they can readily acknowledge like well if I was open about how heavy this is for me to just mm-hmm. go through on my own. They would be disappointed that I hadn't shared it sooner. Yeah. They would be so eager to help. Um, but also I'm not going to burden them. Like I have to do this on my own. And I, so I would say clinically, that's a theme that shows up so often with the patients I work with. And I don't know if there's like a great area of science to support this, but there's enough anecdotes for me to suggest <laughs> that this is absolutely something that happens in relationships all the time. Yeah. yeah. All right. A great quote that the baker and his wife have a wonderful arc in this uh, whole musical about being independent and fixing an issue independently and then learning in the woods, they have to come together in order to solve it. It's the only way they'll solve it is if they come together. So the next is I'm going to do two quotes from Red Riding Hood, one of my favorite characters in this musical. Um, so one of them, okay, the first one is she's on her way to Granny's house and she meets the wolf. And this is after uh, she meets the wolf for the first time. She said, although scary is exciting, nice is different than good. What are we thinking? Sesson? Mm, I have to process that a little yeah. bit. Although scary is exciting, nice is different than good. So for me, that last part, nice is different than good, I, I always think about that, especially in my, like, not necessarily close relationships, but when I'm meeting someone for the first time or new relationships that I just always remember nice is different than good. Someone can put on airs and they can be really kind to me or nice, but it also sometimes that is uh, only the surface and it doesn't mean that they're good or have good intentions is how I interpret that. Right. Nice can be polite and, or sometimes we call it like professional or, but it's not necessarily generous or ethical or, right. yeah. 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 I think it takes time to shift from really understanding how, like nice is the way somebody shows up, right? And the good is more of an internal like state of being and I don't think, and even, I don't know, I have this issue sometimes with determining like what is good, who is good, right? Like, I don't know that that is something I should be in a position to ever judge, right? Um, Because you never will really get to know all sides of somebody and even the sides that are good that they struggle to show. Um, So yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting statement. Makes me think a lot about that idea of, what we get on the outside but mm-hmm. maybe how much there is to a person and how we don't always capture all of that so next from red riding hood i think this is the same song or a similar song or a reprisal of the song but um she's coming back from granny's now i know don't be scared granny is right just be prepared isn't it nice to know a lot and a little bit not? So that last part, I always think about Red Riding Hood, like um, 
losing her innocent, like losing the childhood. Like, isn't it nice to know a lot? It's so good to know a lot. And then she's like, well, a little bit not. Yeah. Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> Sometimes, but then you get sure. caught off guard and you get, get duped by up. a wolf. Yeah. These are deep PR. I'm like, I don't know I that love I love how to like. Oh, this is such a good show. Such a short period of time. I break such, I'm sorry. It's such a good show. Highly recommended. I mean, I'm not, I don't think I have any quotes from Cinderella. Oh, maybe I do later on. Yeah. But um, yeah, I like that one a lot. Thinking about, isn't it nice to know a lot? Because we're always thinking about knowledge. Well, maybe a little mm -hmm. bit not. I don't know. Yeah. But it's also a sort of I definitely struggle with, with raising a child, right? I think a lot of us like, how much do we expose them to? How much do we prepare them? You know, especially like on issues around like social justice for me, like trying to prepare oh, yeah. them for what mm -hmm. the world will inevitably show them in some ways. And like, do I just give him that time now to not have to engage what will very clearly be a, something present in his life? Like, mm -hmm. yeah. So for some kids, it's not an option not to know a lot. And for others, yeah. I don't know. And yeah. Well, just being, I mean, the juxtaposition there in that quote that you've read about how important it is to be prepared and part of being prepared is having all that information about how the world works, but also being prepared is not necessarily sufficient. Like shit's still going to happen to you. Yeah. Um, no matter how much work you do on yourself or how much you go into a situation, like there's all these other variables in, I mean, largely including other people and how they're going to act. Um, and that is, uh, not always predictable. Yeah. I think there's something too, about when you do prepare, it's nice to help them figure out how to cope too with what the new information they have. Yeah. Right. Like, so yeah. it's not, you're just yeah. like, you see a lot of people who experience like anxiety and different symptoms when they have a lot of information and don't know what to do with it. And all of a sudden their sense of life feels like things are unsafe, right? Like how do you help somebody cope with the truths that are out there and not always live in fear of that? Um, and that's really mm. important. Like you can't just share things and not help somebody know how to be settled in that. Um, but I think that's often what we do and because we're often sharing things in a really reactive way. And so we're not always taking the information and saying like, here's how to be in it, how to sit in it and still be able to be all these other things, feel a sense of safety, engage the world, be active, be motivated, you know, and still see the world in all these really positive and also exciting ways, right? It's like living in both, helping them know how to live in all of it and not just in the fear of one day right yeah so the next one is the baker it's a duet between the baker and the baker's wife and i've already kind of talked a little bit about that arc and this is kind of a quote of them kind of on the journey to kind of figuring out that arc um so this is the baker it takes one to begin but then once we've begun it takes two of you it's no fun but what needs to be done, you can do when there's two of you. If I dare, it's because I'm becoming aware of us as a pair of us. You may read it again. Sarah, what are your thoughts? It's that <clears throat> it's no fun piece. So without knowing these characters, it's sort of hard to place like what this relationship advice is really sort of coming yeah. out of. But it does sound sort of like what we were discussing earlier in terms of the need to sort of figure out how to work together as a yep. couple mm -hmm. and sort of how you each maybe can sort of bring your own strengths and your own efforts to like um, go through life, problem solve, uh, negotiate. But that that's not always easy and enjoyable. Um, yeah, it can be hard. Doesn't. Yeah. No, that seems like sort of. I guess some of the essence of relationships. Hmm, interesting. Maybe I should revisit this musical. I don't know why I remember it just like being so stressful. This feels well, I mean, stressful. So I mean, they <laughs> have to they have to find a bunch of stuff in the woods together, and then. 
the insight that Sondheim has in so many of his musicals in the lyrics that he writes is absolutely phenomenal, but he's written for a very, very long time. And he's also known to like have mentored tons of like a junior uh, Broadway people, uh, like the person who wrote Rent, he was, you know, kind of mentored him um, some. But anyway, he Sondheim would tell a a story that he was a closeted gay man for a very, very long time. And he wrote like he was on he wrote West Side Story, like a lot of good musicals, but didn't have the richness that some of his later stuff did. And he came out of the closet. And when he came out of the closet, he said he was able to access because he wasn't keeping that secret so much. He was able to access mm. so much more of his emotionality, of his thoughts, of his experiences. And after he came out and was an openly gay man, all of these brilliant musicals he was able to write and he wrote, mm. including Into the Woods and access all of um, this emotionality and how to put words to it. Yeah. Cool. I did not know that. Mm. The next one is Rapunzel's Prince. So in this musical, there are two princes um, who in the first act are going after um, Rapunzel and Cinderella. And then the second act, they get married and decide they want two different princesses. So they're a little bit uh, flighty, but also hilarious. Like there's somewhat of the comic relief in this uh, story. They have a song called Agony, which is just hilarious. Uh, although different for each. Um, uh, so this is Rapunzel's Prince. The harder to get, the better to have. The harder to get, the better to have. The harder to get, the better to have. What do you think? Good or bad advice? The harder to get, the better to have. Sesson? I don't always agree with that. I mean, it sounds similar to the idea of, you know, uh, anything worth having. No, what, what's the saying? There's another saying. I'm so bad at my sayings. I don't even know why I bothered going down this lane. Um, this road. See, I even said the wrong lane. Um, so <laughs> I think people think like if something is hard, then it something, you know, at the end, good must come out of it right like there's right. This, and I don't always agree with that I think sometimes especially if we're talking about like relationship the harder to get I mean if we're talking about being able to build commitment and trust and this and that that there doesn't mean um once you earn it like that you're gonna I don't know it just feels no, like it's the I agree with you completely like this idea that in order to have a good relationship, we have to go through a deep slog to get to it. Yeah. Like right? there has to be a struggle there. And it's like yeah. to get to the other side, it's like, well, that struggle may be a sign, right. Of things that to come or especially if they're not worked on. Right. But I do think um, it doesn't apply to all the context and especially with relationships. I think that could be problematic. I think that's why I was saying earlier that I feel like we have done a disservice uh, by broadly teaching people that relationships take work mm. because I think people are under the belief now, whether or not they feel like they want to put in the work, uh, that relationships are always hard and they always can be agonizing. And it's my job to slog through it no mm -hmm. matter what. And just continue to apply myself and put in more effort and put in more yeah. without ever sort of slowing down to pause and say, should it take this much work? Should it be this hard all the time? Should it be largely unsatisfying, but at least I'm loyal? I am more concerned that we have gone in some ways further in the other direction where relationships should also be enjoyable yeah. and supportive should come easy and you should feel loved and cared about. And that can fluctuate over time, but oh, I how hard it is to make it work is not uh, a measure of the quality of the relationship. Those two things are not equal. They are not equal. All right. Last one. And then we're going to be done. This is from Cinderella. This is from the opening uh, piece. Mother said, be good. Father said, be nice. That was always their advice. So be nice, Cinderella, kind Cinderella, nice, good, good, nice. What's the good of being good when everybody else is blind and you're always left behind? And then it goes, so be kind, Cinderella, good. So it keeps on going. And this is the beginning. And it is kind of humorous because she's doing her stepsister's hair. So she said, good, 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 nice, good, good, nice. And she's like pulling their hair and the stepsisters are. So anyway, she's talking to herself a little bit. But 
uh, Cinderella point of view. What do we think? Good or bad advice, Sesson? I mean, that last part sort of strikes me a bit. What's the good of being good when everyone else is blind and you're always, and you're always left. left behind? Yeah, it's sort of sad. Um, I think if we're living to be good for the sake of other people noticing or to attract things into our lives, I don't know that that feels like genuine and like I think we should all strive to do good and be good because it's what we want and need for ourselves instead of like attracting someone into our lives I mean that's also great outcome of it but it's not the reason and I don't know if I'm interpreting that as they intended or how you all are interpreting it but that's sort of what it reminds me of it's like to live you know I think um your life according to the values and beliefs that are benefit you and your community and like your family and doing that instead of looking to fill the void of a partner right what's what are your thoughts i heard it as more like describing toxic relationships uh like relationships where people are constantly taking advantage of you i'm also thinking about it in the context of the traditional cinderella story where she is abused for most of her childhood and at least part of her adult life by these family members who are um, treating her so horrendously that um, when I read that story, I wonder where CPS was and why she couldn't escape sooner. Um, So I do think that um, when people are abusive uh, or neglectful and don't give you the same kind of regard that uh, you're giving them, it is a very good reason to question why you continue to persist in putting work into that relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think both of what you're saying could potentially be an interpretation of this too um, and like lead to good advice, uh, certainly. Um, all along well if anything i hope that this segment has made you both curious to watch the agenda this is your agenda always sondheim for life uh so as always thanks for listening to attached remember call us email us and get at us on the social medias about any relationship advice you've received and you're wondering whether to follow or pass on we cannot wait to talk about it